What I want to give you is a kind of a big picture of what I think our lives are about. I'm going to, this is going to be a very, uh, like, 35,000-foot picture of what the human story is about, but it actually touches very intimately what each of our stories is about as well. And I want to start with this kind of um, paradox or, well, puzzle, I might say, from the very first page of Scripture. Uh, you may be familiar with this story that opens our Bible as we have it uh, coming to us from the people of Israel and read by Jesus and uh, added to by the apostles in the New Testament, but we still open up to the first page and we read this. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and darkness was on the face of the deep while a wind or breath, or spirit, it's all the same word in Hebrew, a ruach from God, hovered over the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God called the light day. And the darkness, he called night. God separated the light from the darkness, and God saw that the light was good, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. That's how our story starts. Every other creation myth at the time that this story was first told and written down involved conflict and violence. The Enuma Elish told of Marduk, the kind of uh, hero of the Babylonian creation epic. He's kind of a demigod. He's not the big god, but he's sort of a minor god. The big gods in the Babylonian epics don't ever do anything. All they do is just sit in heaven and sniff the barbecue that flows up. So next week, your barbecue will offer up a pleasing aroma to the Babylonian over-gods. They are too lazy to actually do anything, so they deploy minor gods to actually do the dirty work of creating. And in Marduk's case, he doesn't have to just create, but he actually has to slay the goddess Tiamat, who's the goddess of disorder and chaos. So... Marduk enters into battle with Tiamat. He slays Tiamat uh, in this kind of climactic battle. And having slayed or slain Tiamat, he then fillets Tiamat. And the upper half of Tiamat becomes the sky, and the lower half of Tiamat becomes the earth. Uh, And so if you're a Babylonian child and you walk out on a starry night and you say, oh, mommy, what am I looking at? She says, well, that's the upper half of the corpse of Tiamat. Oh, that's lovely. And mommy, what are those twinkling things? Oh, my child, those are the drops of blood that congealed out of Tiamat's corpse. Mm. Oh, and mommy, what are we walking around on? We're walking around on the lower half. And mommy, who are we? Well, my child, we are the congealed drops of blood that oozed out of the ground. That was the story everyone knew at the time the story I just recited to you began to be told. And think about how different it is. In the beginning, when God, not some demigod, but when the creator God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form. There was no primal battle, no primal conflict. And God simply speaks, and it's so, and God beholds, and it's good. Day one. Then day two, God again speaks, and this time separates the heavens from the earth. And he he sees. 
Oh, sorry, he speaks and it's so, and then he sees and it's good. And that's day two. And then day three, God separates the sea from the land. God speaks and it's so, and he sees and it's good. And it's this pattern. It's like a liturgical poem. And you get the rhythm of it. He speaks, it's so, he sees, it's good. Day one, two, three. Then days four, five, six, God goes back. And every realm that he created on days one, two, and three now get filled with creatures. So day four corresponds to day one. And on day four, God fills the realm of darkness with little uh, twinkling lights and the great light, the sun and the moon. And so when a Hebrew child walks out under the sky and looks up, uh, what does that child see? He sees, or she sees, this uh, array of stars flung into the heavens by the Creator who spoke them into being, saw them, and said, this is good. Totally different view of the world from their Babylonian neighbors and captors. <laughs> On day five, God fills, similarly, the uh, sky and, the, and the, the earthly, the terrestrial realm. And so birds start to swarm across the skies in flocks and fish start to teem in the waters. And then on day six, God fills the, the sea and the land. So now the land has creatures in it. So three days of ordering and separating, light, dark, heavens, earth, sea, land, and three days of filling. And at the end of day six, you expect, like you know the story at this point. Every day God speaks, it's so, he sees, it's good. And at the end of day six, the, the land is filled with teeming creatures, and here we go. And then something very unexpected happens. The liturgical structure of the poem is interrupted. It's as if we were singing verse, chorus, verse, chorus the whole time, and then suddenly the band like does this bridge that none of us knows. And you're like, what? What are they singing? And this time, God, who's been saying, in a, using the impersonal verb, let there be, let there be, let there be, suddenly we hear God say, let us make. And we suddenly realize, and this is, by the way, in the founding text of Hebrew monotheism, the first monotheistic text that said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and yet this God speaks in the plural. What is that about? And says, let us make human beings in our image. In the image of God, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over all the creatures that are in the sea and the sky. And then God once more sees and, and says, and God saw it was very good. And only then does day six end. So here's the kind of twin puzzle. Uh, the first puzzle is why this interruption in the poem, why this deviation, uh, I sometimes think of it as the bonus round on day six. Where does this bonus round of creation come from? And why is it that God, at the end of the sixth day, having gone through this personal investment of himself in the world, now doesn't just say the world is good, but actually says the world is very good? I think it has something to do with us. <laughs> I think it has something to do with these creatures, human beings, who in one way are creatures just like every other creature. Made from dust. We sang that or said that earlier. Made just like all the other parts of creation. And yet, there's something different. There's something that interrupts and adds to the pattern of creation once human beings are in it. What is that interruption? What is that addition 
that causes God to say, not just as he said all along, it's good, but now, now it's very good. And what I think it is, is that unlike every other part of creation, as good as all of creation is, only we, human beings, are said that we're made in the image of God. These creatures, us creatures, have capacities that the rest of creation doesn't have, and one of our capacities, or actually I think several of them, mirror what God himself has done in creation. So these are creatures that are able to behold the world the way that God, in a way that that God beheld the world. Other creatures, I don't know if you've noticed this, other creatures don't seem to behold the world exactly. So I have squirrels in my backyard that I like to behold. (laughs) I I have a kind of fondness for my squirrels. In fact, I have a certain sense of responsibility for my squirrels. These squirrels, the squirrels, not my squirrels. But they sort of feel like my squirrels. They inhabit my backyard. I watch them through my window, and I've noticed they never watch me. I mean, except in alarm, perhaps. I mean, you know, but they never, like, say, behold, a human being. Wow. Whereas I often stop and say, look at that squirrel. And I have this sense of care for the squirrels. So I, wor- I watch them running around with nuts um, in their mouths at, as winter approaches, uh, and I think, are you going to remember where you put that nut? I mean, the chances that you're going to be able to find that nut seem very small to me, and I worry about them making it through the winter. The squirrels never seem to exhibit any concern for me. So they never say, oh, human, how is your retirement plan? Like, are you, you, know, are you doing okay? They don't notice me. They don't notice the other creatures. The robins are bouncing around in, our, in the grass. The squirrels and the robins seem to have nothing to do with each other. They don't behold each other. But I behold them both, and I say, this is beautiful. A big, plump, red robin. Other creatures occasionally pay attention to each other. So, you know, dogs also, you know, squirrel, right? There is that phenomenon of of creatures paying attention to each other, but almost always with a prurient interest, you might say. And only human beings have this capacity to just look and pay attention and say, this is beautiful. This is amazing. I was sitting out on the porch of my host's, um, when I arrived uh, on Friday here in Oakland, and... I just looked up at the blue of the sky and the two greens of two different trees that were above me, and I thought, this deserves an Instagram. (laughs) Click, behold. And whatever you think of, you know, was I trying to show off, hey, friends, I'm in Oakland, I'm in California, you're back in Philadelphia where it's raining right now, whatever. I was beholding something. And once the image bearers are in the world, they are themselves going to behold and say, this is good, and then they are going to begin to interact with the world. We have capacity for attention, memory, reason, skill, such that we're able to actually take this world that we're in and begin to discover what it's made of, what's possible, and what we can add to it. So the world has, let me give you a couple examples of this kind of process, which I would say is the process from nature to culture. The process from good to very good is human beings taking the natural world but then discovering that it has potentialities within it that don't just disclose themselves, but that if we work on the world, something begins to happen. So um, let's see, let's start with eggs. So the world has eggs in it and chickens, and at some point it has both. I don't know which comes first, but at some point you have eggs and chickens. The eggs turn out to be somewhat superfluous, um, or uh, there's extra eggs beyond just what's needed to keep the chickens going. 
Uh, and in fact, not all eggs are even fertilized. And so human beings notice this. They begin to domesticate chickens. And at some point, a human being goes to the chicken. This is a free-range chicken, known by name and organically raised and everything. And <laughs> the human being says to the chicken, you seem to have an extra egg this morning. May I borrow that egg? And the chicken says, cluck, cluck, cluck. You know, it's fine. So human being takes the egg. All right, an egg is good. But if you break open that egg and you mix it together, maybe with a whisk, so that the, uh, the protein uh, that, that forms the uh, white of the egg mixes with that kind of fatty, nutritious yolk, and then you put it in a pan for just the right amount of time at the right amount of heat with just a little bit of oil. And maybe while it's simmering there and the proteins are kind of unfolding uh, and, and coagulating, um, maybe you toss a little bit of cheese, ham, and green peppers in there, fold it over once, flip it out of the pan, and you have an omelet. Now, I would say eggs are good. Omelets are very good. <laughs> All right? Like, which would you rather have for breakfast? Just a raw egg or an omelet? I mean, an omelet is, and an omelet brings to the surface all the fullness of an egg. It's this amazingly tasty thing. I hope I'm not making too, you too hungry here. The world has grain in it. So human beings notice that the grain has this uh, unnutritious, protective outer chaff or husk. But if you, you, if you thresh it, that stuff kind of flies away and you're left with the nutritious germ of the grain. You crush that. Uh, maybe using stones put together, add a little bit, just a tiny little bit of salt and some water, and you can even just let the yeast in the air colonize it, or you can add yeast. And that's all you need. Let that sit in the right conditions for the right amount of time, then put it in an appropriately hot uh, environment for, say, 20 or 30 minutes, and you take out bread. You started with grain. Now you have bread. Grain is good. Bread is very good. The world has grapes in it. So human beings realize if you put those grapes up on trellises so they're stressed by wind and rain and sun, and you let them grow until the sugars inside the grape have really started to uh, uh, form, harvest the grapes at the right time, crush them so that the yeast that's been growing on the outside of the grape suddenly mixes with the sugars on the inside, and the yeast is like, thank you, that was what I was looking for, and goes to town, starts to produce uh, the result of fermentation, which is basically yeast pee, I'm sorry to say, but that's the truth. It's the excretion of the yeast as they have fun with the sugars. Put that in the right conditions for the right amount of time, uh, maybe a little bit of oak, say for about two or three years, draw off the result, and if you're Baptist, you get grape juice. <laughs> but I'm Anglican, and when we do this, <laughs> We draw the result, the result out, and you have wine. I would say grapes are good. <laughs> wine is very good. <laughs> and wine is the fullness of grapes. It, it, they say, the people who really know how to taste wine, say you can taste the ground that the grape was grown in. You can taste which side of the hill it grew on. Because wine encapsulates and brings to the surface all the abundance of grapes. It's interesting, by the way, that when we take communion, as we'll do at the end of this service, what do we bring to God and offer up to God and ask God to bless and ask, ask him to return to us as the body and blood of his son? We don't offer grain and grapes. That would just be nature. But instead, we offer what human beings have made of this world, which is bread and grape juice or wine. Today, it's grape juice, I think. 
That's okay. Grape juice is an amazing technological achievement. Nothing wrong with grape juice. Like keeping it from fermenting, that took a lot of work, okay? <laughs> why, why? Why do we offer up bread and wine, not grain and grapes? Because human beings were always meant to do this, to take the good world and discover that if you activate its potentiality, if you apply generations, literally centuries of uh, attention, memory, reason, skill to making bread, to making wine or grape juice, uh, to, to discovering the fullness of the world, you discover this world is not just good. It's very good once there are image bearers in it. So now, in our modern world, we get to do this in all kinds of ways. Um, so I'm married to a physicist. My, this is my wife, Catherine. And Catherine is an experimental physicist, um, which means uh, that in our house she does all the plumbing and all the electrical work, because that's basically what, whenever there's a plumbing problem, I'm like, Catherine, you're the physicist, you know, you take care of it. Uh, she's, she also does math at the same time. I think I have a picture of her doing math, maybe, if, the, if my clicker will do it. So between her laser table, where she bounces femtosecond lasers around through prisms and does other things that I'm not qualified to describe to you in any detail, and between the math, which I also don't understand, although I think this is something about electromagnetic field theory-ish, I don't know. Um, amazingly, Catherine, who is an image bearer, after all, and joins other image bearers in this grand project of physics, discovers that the world is beautifully mathematical and beautifully fruitful when you apply that mathematics to it. Which the Babylonian world, no, you, you, no Babylonian ever imagined that the corpse of Tiamat had any kind of mathematical order or beauty to it. But it turns out that our world answers to our human quest for beauty in mathematical form, and when you do certain things to it, it does beautiful things, like, this is what Catherine worked on for her PhD. This is an electron microscope, microscope photograph at the nanoscale of a piece of silicon that's had one of her lasers shown at it in very uh, intense and very short rapid pulses pulsed femtosecond laser, and then it's been dosed with sodium hexafluoride or something like that, um, sulfur hexafluoride. Uh, I have no idea what I'm saying right now. So, uh, <laughs> and what happens is, because of the pro properties of quantum mechanics, these structures begin to form on the surface of silicon that create these little peaks and valleys. that They just form kind of uh, spontaneously in a sense, and we can model mathematically why they do this. And it turns out that when a photon falls into this little piece of silicon that's been treated in this way, it never comes out. Photons can check in, but they can't check out. And they fall into those valleys, and, and part of what uh, silicon and semiconductors do is they can turn uh, photons into electrons. They can turn light into electricity. And so this turns out to be the foundation of a new kind of solar cell that is basically 100% captures every single electron that comes in and is highly, highly uh, absorbent and highly efficient. It's called black silicon. And my wife has a patent on it, <laughs> along, with like, along with like 500 other people. Um, and it's being commercialized now, and the royalty checks that arrive are very good, but uh, the truth is, what's amazing about it, nobody's in physics for the money of it, it's for the beauty of it. That the world can do this, but it would never do this unless an image bearer came along and said, let's try shining a femtosecond laser at this and then dosing it with sulfur hexafluoride. And it turns out to be beautiful in a kind of funny way and incredibly useful, and it's very good. And it doesn't happen without an image bearer. We don't get that without an image bearer. And I think God 
has looked at us all along from the first human beings who discovered when you crush those grapes that the yeast got to work and people didn't even know what was in there, but they knew how to make it work. And they discovered how good it could be, how, how uh, safe it was. Anti, the, the alcohol provides antibacterial properties and so forth. And God's like, oh, awesome. You just figured something out. <laughs> you figured out wine. I was always waiting for you to figure out wine. You figured out bread. Uh, then they figure out cheese. Basically, everything good in the world has to do with yeast, basically. <laughs> and then along come the classical physicists. And they're like, oh, wait a minute. I think this world is perfectly mathematically regular. And God's like, yes, that's beautiful. You figured that out. Very good. And then along come the, mo the modern physicists, and they say, wait a minute. The classical mechanics break down at the smallest level. And it turns out the world is not just atoms and billiard balls bouncing off each other. There's actually this beautiful, unpredictable, random, uh, probabilistic quality to reality at the lowest scale, at this scale of reality. And God's like, ah, you just figured out there's freedom in my universe along with law-governed behavior. That's very good. It's all been waiting for us all along. One more example of this. One more good to very good thing. Let's do a little music. So actually, we'll start with physics. Um, if you uh, strike a string, let me see if this is going to play the way I expect. Yep. If you strike a string, uh, like you would on a piano, this is simulating a, a piano, uh, it begins to vibrate, right? And that's physics. And it vibrates with one low frequency. I'm striking a C here, and it, that low C is vibrating. But the interesting thing is, when you strike a string, it actually starts to vibrate with several different frequencies at once. So not just that lowest note vibrates, but then you also get this, the next, what we call overtone, is another frequency. It happens to be a C, an octave above that low C, this note. This note is actually vibrating in that single lowest struck string. And then the next overtone that vibrates is not a C, not another one of the same notes, but it's actually the fifth of, of our scale, which is called a G. And that G is also vibrating in that lowest string. If you've ever played like the little overtones on a guitar or a violin, you, you've heard this. An octave, and then a fifth, and then a couple overtones later, you get this note, which is not a C or a G, it's an E. And C, E, G is what we call the major chord in Western music. And when I play it, when I play a nice sort of full major chord, let me try that. All those overtones kind of harmonize very nicely, don't they? It's a very comfortable sounding chord. Very Christian sounding chord, I think. Very, uh, <laughs> very appropriate because all those overtones harmonize so nicely. And so what you can do if you're Johann Sebastian Bach is you can say, I wonder what we could do if we just play this two times in the most basic, simple structure. And we can just play that out over time in an absolutely perfect rhythmic sequence. Nothing very complicated about it. But then Bach says, let's try creating a chord that's just where the overtones are just slightly in tension with each other, and he goes to this chord. And that chord doesn't feel as simple and harmonious. It doesn't feel as much home. It feels like it kind of leads to, or seems to draw you towards something like this. And that, in turn, seems to draw you back to that home chord. Now, what Bach has done in this four-bar sequence is he's begun with the three most basic chords of the Western system. One, four, five, 
and then back to one. And they kind of lead to one another by the physical properties of how they kind of ring in our ears. One, four, five, one. If you know those three chords, you can be a worship leader. Uh, but um, <laughs> you, <laughs> that's not fair. You actually need one more chord. You need the relative minor, the A minor chord. And it turns out that's the next chord Bach goes to. So what he's going to do, he's starting out with the most basic, the most simple, where the overtones almost line up. But he now goes to a minor chord. And then he starts to go to other chords that worship leaders have never heard of. And he says, I wonder how many different chords I can create just with the 12 tones of the Western scale, only 12 notes to work with, only one pattern he's using, and yet he creates these beautiful moments of tension and resolution. Now he's going to go to a diminished chord, a little more tension, tension, and it resolves to a minor chord. That minor chord sounded kind of... Uh, dissonant before, but now it's a relief. <laughs> Another tense chord going back to this chord. And what Bach is doing is building up of these simplest building blocks, and this the simplest piece he ever wrote, which is why I can talk and play it at the same time. Uh, he's building up this kind of story that takes you further and further away from the harmony of the original chord. He's going to take you in this sequence to the most dissonant moment in the whole piece, although not before giving us some jazz. This is a jazz chord. Uh, Bach knew jazz. He knew it all. But now, listen to what he does here. Uh, sorry, uh, let me go back. Uh-oh, I got lost. All right. Here we go. I got distracted by my jazz. There we go. And here at the very center of the piece is the most dissonant chord in the piece. This chord, if I play it splat, is all at once, is actually quite disturbing. So I will play it splat. Ha. Very unchristian, very uh, <laughs> alarming. But in the context of the piece, even the dissonance is actually quite beautiful. The dissonance is actually necessary to the piece. It's part of exploring the fullness of the possibility of these 12 tones. And so Bach has to take you there, and then he has to take you back through this sequence. We're heading back towards the home chord now, not without some additional dissonance, a lot of dissonance there, a moment of resolution, but he's suspending us. He's sort of holding us uh, above the main note, that low C, and now he's going to take us back to that low C, but not without one last moment of dissonance. There it is. And then the four. And the five. And we're off. <laughs> Sound is natural. Sound is good. Music is very good. So here's a question for you. In what way in your life, your daily life and work, are you part of somehow noticing, beholding, and attending to the goodness of the world and adding something that makes it very good? 
I'd like you to actually turn to a neighbor and just for a moment think out loud about this. When, when in your day do you get to be part of this story of good to very good in some way? Think out loud with one neighbor about that for just one minute. Go ahead. All right, finish that thought. Let's hear a couple examples. What came to mind? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very good. For two people to uh, come together, love one another, and yet th it, there's this additional goodness that comes from our lives when we are fruitful and multiply. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So when we join a larger story that redeems and makes sense of our lives, we go from just the goodness, it is good to be a human being, but it's very good to put that story in the context of this bigger story. And that's what happens when you come to Jesus and get drawn up into his story. One more example. Yes. I have a feeling you're significantly understating what you actually get to do. <laughs> and you work with the natural world of materials and of human requirements for space and life and work, but you, you create something that takes those materials and, and makes room for the human activity of culture from good to very good. Fantastic. Can I take 10 more minutes? Is that too much? Is it feeling like, boy, I hope he's done soon, or are you okay? So here's the thing. This will lead us toward communion, in a way. What happened to this story? Because this isn't the whole story. The tragic turn in the story is that the ones who were meant to make creation flourish, the, were, the ones who were meant to imitate their creator in every way by imaging him, by beholding, and speaking, and creating, and seeing, and evaluating, and saying, this is good, it's very good, let's add some more, let's do some more. We were meant to bring the whole creation to all of its possibility. That is not what we are doing. Hmm. Not the only thing we're doing. Why? Because the image bearers abdicated our role. 
And we instead, instead of using our creativity to take the good world and make it very good, we used our creativity to make what the Bible calls idols. And an idol is something that purports to bear the image of God, but in fact misrepresents the true God. An idol is a thing, not a person, to which persons look, and they hear the idol make two promises. <laughs> the idol says, if you build your life around me, you shall be like God, and you shall not surely die. And these first image bearers, in the garden in which they were placed to begin their work of tending the world, turned to this one tree and here whispered in their ear this, these two promises. If you eat this fruit, you'll be better than you are. Now, they're already made in the image of God. It's very odd that they would say, ooh, I'd like to be like God. But human beings have this sense of incompleteness and the idol promises you can have the fullness of God-likeness just by eating this fruit and... The woman protests, but God, if we eat it, we'll die. The serpent says, no, you won't die. In other words, you have all the power you want, none of the vulnerability you fear. And so how does this work? Uh, let me give an example. Having sung the praises of wine, let me talk about the dark side of fermentation. So when does alcohol become an idol? Well, let me describe one situation where this might happen. You walk into a room... Um, and it's full of people you don't know. Maybe it's freshman year at Cal. <laughs> and it's vulnerable to walk into a room of people you don't know, and it kind of feels like, ooh, I'm, I'm dying here. I don't know what to do. Who do I talk to? Where do I stand? Everyone else seems to be having a great time. But what if I could hand you something that as you would drink it, now admittedly it would be in like a red Solo cup, not like this cool-looking martini here or whatever. But as you drank it, that sense of vulnerability would begin to ebb away, and a sense of godlike power would descend on you. <laughs> and just by sipping this thing, you're like, oh, this isn't so bad. I'm actually, this is feeling pretty good. You start to dance better. Other people become better looking. Like, it's <laughs> this part, let's get this party started, right? And at the moment that you use alcohol to elevate your sense of godlikeness -like, God and to take away that very natural human sense of frailty, it starts to become an idol for you. And the amazing thing about idols is they work at first. At first they work. So every idol that starts out, uh, let me put both of these up and explain them. Every idol starts out actually promising a lot. You'll be like God, you shall not surely die. And actually demanding very little. But as you keep worshiping that thing, the idol delivers less and less while it demands more and more of you. It takes more and more of a dose to get that same effect. And eventually, the thing that started out promising a lot, asking a little, as it delivers less and less, demands more and more, eventually the thing that promised you everything, asked you nothing, ends up delivering nothing and asking everything. And what idols do is that they distort our image-bearing by making us slaves of things that can never actually deliver what they promise. There are lots of different idols in our world. It's interesting that the most powerful company in our world, click, click, and its device is not responding to my command, there we go, has as its logo, 
the bitten fruit. And they used to put, you know, like nice rainbow colors on it, like to say, hey, it all worked out great. We bit the fruit. It's, it's awesome. Version 9 is even better than version 8. <laughs> the founder of Apple, of course, was Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was an image bearer. Uh, he, he was a very confident man. He sort of had himself portrayed the way that ancient icons uh, would portray figures. And in many ways, he created the fruitfulness that we all would love to be part of creating in the world. He really was, he did bring very goodness out of, out of the world in many, many ways. But Steve Jobs also had an idol. And his idol was not technology. <laughs> his idol was food. When Steve Jobs was a teenager, he went to an apple farm in Washington State. And this was back in the 60s. People were doing weird things back then, I've heard. And for two weeks, according to his biographer, Walter Isaacson, Steve Jobs only ate apples. All he ate. He had a raw fruit diet, all apples for two weeks. And as you may know, when you eat a raw food diet, it can have this very elevating effect. He found that on this raw, all-apple diet, he had an elevated sense of power. He was able to hold other people's gaze and kind of in that kind of famous piercing gaze he had and had a sense of power and capacity and energy that he had never had before. And Steve Jobs, for the rest of his life, never had a healthy relationship with food. He had what Walter Isaacson forthrightly calls in his biography an eating disorder. Steve Jobs used food to control his world. He would storm out of restaurants when the food wasn't the way it was meant to be. He would leave his, his own family dinner table when the food wasn't exactly the way he wanted it. Every idol, by the way, when it starts to take over your life, starts to disrupt your relationships. And in 2003, if I remember the chronology correctly, Steve Jobs went for a fairly routine medical exam, but the, the doctors found evidence of cancer, and they said, we need to do more tests. It seems like you might have pancreatic cancer. They did the further tests, and when they came back with the test results, the doctors had tears in their eyes, and they were tears of joy. They said, you have the one form of pancreatic cancer that can be cured. It's called islet cell pancreatic cancer. It tends to be very well contained. All we have to do is do a, a little surgery, remove the portion of your pancreas that's cancerous. It's called the modified Whipple procedure. And we have every expectation after that surgery, you will live a, a full, healthy life. Steve Jobs left that examining room and for the next nine months tried to treat his cancer with food. He had, went through all these crazy diets. None of them worked as his family and friends pleaded with him just to have this surgery. But Steve Jobs, according to his widow, Lorraine Powell Jobs, said Steve did not want to give up control of his body. Every idol promises you control. He didn't want to let the surgeons take, take control. And when he finally gave in and had the surgery 11 months later, the, the cancer had already spread. He was never again cancer-free. And in 2011, he died of that cancer. But what he really died of was idolatry. There's every expectation he could have been cured. When I say idols promise a lot and demand very little, but eventually they deliver nothing and demand everything, it's not a manner of speaking. They will take over your life. They will rob you of your image bearing. And the world that God meant to be full of image bearers is now full of idols. It's also full of injustice. And injustice is just a social condition where somebody promises a lot and it ends up delivering nothing and demands everything in return. 
the most powerful form of slavery. This gentleman, Jayakumar Christian, uh, is the head of World Vision India, and he took me to meet some modern-day slaves. There was a list of them on the wall of a um, community center. Children who had been sold into slavery for loans that their families couldn't repay. A local money lender would offer them 3,000 rupees. Uh, it's like $50 for some urgent need. And the family would, would take the loan, but would never be able to repay the loan because the interest rates were so usurious. And the, eventually, the money lender's henchmen would come to the family and say, well, you're not repaying the loan, so let's take your child. And he can work for the money lender, or she can work for the money lender. And so what happens? This family is promised something, gets the loan, gets what they need, and initially the demands are very small. Just in, pay the interest, but the interest is, grows and grows. The family can't pay. Eventually the loan is gone. Eventually the money lender who promised that loan uh, and, and was only asking a little at the beginning now demands everything after the loan is gone. It's the same pattern as idolatry. And what's the most you can demand of a poor family? Their child. And so all these children in this district in India, had 80% uh, of children school age had been enslaved. And I realized the reason the prophets say the two things God hates are idolatry and injustice are these are the two things that destroy the image of God. Idols destroy the image, and injustice destroys and degrades the image of God. So what are we in the world to do? We're here to restore that image. We are here in the image of the one who came, and he was fully God and fully human, and everything he touched was made very good again. Every human being he touched came back to life. Every loaf of bread and jug of wine that he touched, even jugs of water, <laughs> turned into wine. He was the true image bearer. We're here at his table. Why? Because he restored the possibility that we could live that kind of flourishing life we were meant to lead. That had happened, I'll just end with this, in this village in India. Christians for 10 years had been working in this village to release children from slavery. And I met um, some of these kids. A year before I met them, some of them had been enslaved. And now they were back in school. And I got to talk about, uh, with this girl in the middle through a translator and said, uh, what, do you, what do you hope to do when you grow up? And she said, I want to be a doctor uh, because we have no doctor in our village. This is a girl who a year before had been uh, rolling cigarettes in a dirty backyard uh, seven days a week, not allowed to go home, exploited in every way. Now she'd been set free and she wanted to be a doctor. I said, that's beautiful, that's very good. And then I was trying to think what else do you ask like a 13-year-old who you've never met in a foreign country. And I was like, oh, okay, let's see. Uh, what do you like to do after school? And she said, oh, we free slaves. <laughs> I said, oh, really? Tell me more. She said, well, there's still children in our district. About 10% of children in this district were still enslaved. She said, so after school, my friends and I go to the places where children are still enslaved, and we go to the money lender, and we tell them, what you're doing is illegal. You could be put in jail. And this was now true in this district. And then she said, we go to the children, and we tell them, you do not have to stay here. You're free to leave. Come with us tomorrow. We'll get you a school uniform. Come with us to school. We free slaves. I realized I had just met my first 13-year-old abolitionist. And the more I thought about it, the more I think that's our mission. What happened when we abdicated our image bearing to idols and injustice? We all have become slaves. There's not a person in this room who hasn't been bound by something that promised us a lot, initially asked us a little, but ended up 
demanding everything and delivering nothing. There's not a person in this room who hasn't participated and sometimes been the victim of injustice. But Jesus came to restore the image of God in the world. And so as we come to this table and we come to him, we ask him to make us what we were always meant to be, those who would take his good world, make it very good, so that the earth would be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Recall us to life, Lord Jesus, through your death and resurrection. Recall us to ourselves through the giving of your spirit that animates us, that spirit with which you first blew into us your image. As we come to you, to your table, would you feed us with the very things we've made that we now offer to you and ask you to transfigure and transform them as you transfigure and transform us. And would you then send us out into the world into every place where idols and injustice hold sway and make us people who restore your image wherever we go. In Jesus' name we pray.